morning, Journey. Great to see you. Uh, now I get the privilege of getting to introduce our speaker this morning. As Drew comes out, uh, I want to uh, let you know something. Uh, oftentimes we get asked around here, uh, Journey, do you have a college ministry? And the answer is no, we don't have our own specific college ministry. Uh, But there was a strategic decision we made at the very beginning of the life of Journey is that there are amazing groups up on campus that do a fantastic job of helping students come to faith in Christ and disciple them in Christ. Ministries like InterVarsity and Young Life and Navigators and Crew. And those leaders are in and around our church. So when college students come, and we know that they are coming with a vengeance right now. You've been out on the roads. You know that traffic's getting much heavier. They're here, and we love it that they're here. Uh, But we want students to get involved with campus ministries. One of those leaders of a campus ministry that is in and around our church and I've become good friends with over this last year is Drew Frazier. He leads the Navigator ministry here. Uh, He moved up here from Colorado and he and his wife, they give the best hours of their day and give their entire life to helping college students come to know who Jesus is and to make him known to as many people as possible. And because I spent so many years on the college campus, I can say that Drew's heart beats for the exact same things that my heart beats for. And we've had lots of conversation. In fact, yesterday he sent me a text of these, uh, a pile of surveys that they did during Catapalooza, spiritual interest questionnaires. And he just texted me and said, wouldn't you want to follow those up? And I just said, absolutely. I'd give anything to be able to be back up on the campus and do what he does. We're so grateful to have Drew here with us sharing the word today. So let's give a warm welcome to Drew Frazier. Love Love you, buddy. But appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Uh, my wife and I, my family, have only been in the Valley about 14 months or so. We moved up here last summer from Denver, just in time for winter. And uh, when you move to a new town and uh, you start asking your mortgage broker, hey, do you know any churches in town? And you start asking uh, your realtor, hey, do you know any good churches in town? You start asking your neighbors, hey, do you know any good churches in town? You start asking people at Costco, hey, do you know any good churches in town? It's one of my lead-in questions, if you can't tell. Can I tell you what? Bob Schwann's name came up over and over and over. And Journey Church came up over and over and over. Bob, you can earn a bad reputation in a night, but it takes a long time to earn a good reputation in a whole community. So thanks for leading us so well. Journey, same to you, yeah. (laughs) Journey Church, we know that it's this, the people... You have a great reputation as well, so keep it up in this valley, reaching this valley for the Lord. I want to start off with a story. I was on my back porch with my kids. Uh, They're 10, 8, and 6. We were on the back porch, oh, about a month ago. My wife was traveling with some family. And my son looks over at me. His name is Dax. And he looked at me, and he he got real serious for a second. We were on the back porch. He said, Dad, how many students are we going to trust God for this year at MSU? Last year, we pioneered. We didn't know any students. It was my wife and another staff guy. And uh, we kind of went out, hit the campus. And we began to meet students. And God blessed it. And I looked over at my son. I said, son, this year, uh, what what we're hoping is, is God, God might bless us with even 100 new students. And his eyes got as big as saucers. And he was like, whoa. And I was like, I know. And I looked over at my seven-year-old little girl, and her face was to the side. She had a confused look, and she said, Daddy? And I said, yeah, Biz. That's what we call her. 
She said, wouldn't we trust God for all the students? Uh, uh, yeah, Biz. Actually, that's what I meant to say. And I laid in bed that night thinking, oh, Lord, give me the faith of a seven-year-old little girl. Don't let us dream small dreams. Let us reach the 17,000 students that show up every year at MSU. Then I started to realize we can't do it alone. Any MSU students in the house today? Anybody? Welcome back. We're glad you're here. Yeah, you guys can clap. That'd be fine. With the Navigators, we can't do it alone. We can't reach the whole campus. Where's my brother Ben? Ben with InterVarsity. Where are you at, Ben? There's Ben. If you're a student, find Ben. Adam, are you here with Young Life? Adam, he'll probably be at the 11. He doesn't skip church, just so you know. I got friends with Crew. There's so many amazing churches and ministries in town reaching college students. If you're a student, grab one of these ministries. Let them help you grow in your faith. But I pray you might find a church home here at Journey. We are thrilled that you're here. And I've been doing these survey follow-ups all weekend. And as I talk with students... On the campus, I find myself coming back to the same illustration all the time. I sit down with so many freshmen, say, welcome to college. What are you thinking about how your life should look like spiritually while you're here? And I describe, while you're in college, there's nothing but a fork in the road here, bro. You're going to grow radically towards God, or chances are you are going to drift far away from God in college. And there's 20 years on the campus, I've learned there's very little middle ground, if any. We don't just get to cruise and stay here, but if we decide to move towards God, it happens. If we drift, we drift away from the Lord. It reminds me what the young missionary who died reaching uncontacted people in the Amazon decades ago, Jim Elliott, said. He said this. He said, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to to decision." Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. We want you students and we want you Journey Church to recognize there is a fork in the road of life and you will grow ultimately towards the Lord or away from him. There really is no middle ground. So when Bob asked me if I would want to preach on this uh, continuing series of the summer in the Psalms, I jumped at it and I said, I would like to do Psalm 1, mainly because Chris took Psalm 139, but that's okay. (laughs) Psalm 1 is one of my favorite Psalms, and it gives us this illustration of the fork in the road. It's the gateway psalm. You're familiar with a big gateway around here. Here's a picture of it. This is is, uh, the big archway down there at Yellowstone National Park for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. When you drive by this, I want you to think of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the gateway into the rest of the Psalms, dare I say, the rest of understanding how we go about the Scriptures. It's a simple passage. It's just six verses long. But it is, you know, if you stand at the gate there at Yellowstone, you know that something grand is about to happen. And it would be so silly for us to stand at the archway going, wow, I bet it's awesome inside of there. You want to head back to Gardner? (laughs) The reality is you and I are invited by that gateway to come in and explore and look at the wondrous things that God has created for our enjoyment and to reflect his glory. So I'm going to read Psalm 1, and I want you to see if you can see that it is the gateway to understanding the rest of the Psalms, if not the Scriptures. But before I read it, I want to remind us, when I read these six verses, this is the best thing you will hear today. 
Whenever we open up the word of God, you're not going to hear something better from someone else. Can I tell you, your friend's not gonna call you later and say something more valuable than what you'll hear now. Your boss isn't gonna call you with good news about your performance. It's gonna sound better than what you're gonna hear now. That cute guy or girl you've been having your eye on isn't gonna say something sweeter to you this week than what you're gonna hear right now. I'm from the South. Your mima ain't calling you and she's gonna say something better to you than what you're gonna hear right now. When we open the word of God, it is the most powerful thing that's going to hit our ears. Psalm one, let's read it, it's six verses. Let's go for a ride. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sitters or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. Do you see the fork in the road? Do you see the two options laid out before you? We've got one world where we're, we're thriving and deepening our knowledge and understanding and relationship with the living God. We've got the other road that leads towards destruction and death and apart from him. Let's dive in and see what this has to say. We're just gonna cover the first three verses this morning because Bob didn't give me two hours. <laughs> Verse one says this, blessed. We could stop right there and do the rest of the message right here. Isn't it interesting that God would open up the book of the Psalms with the word blessed? Our God is a blessing God. He is one who seeks to bless his people. He is one who wants to bless you in your chair this morning. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. This blessing is not a health and wealth prosperity gospel. It doesn't mean that if you begin to do the things listed in Psalm 1 that somehow everything in your life is going to be easy. In fact, Jesus promised it's going to be as hard as anybody else's life. So what is God saying when he says we're going to be blessed if we don't do these following things? I want to submit to you it is a blessing of more of him. He is the prize. He is the blessing. There's nothing greater than him. When I go out in an endeavor to know God, he is the prize. I wouldn't want to go to heaven if he's not there. He is the goal. And he says, if you follow these things, you'll be blessed. And, and I do believe you'll be blessed when you follow the word, when you live with biblical principles in your life. But I think the blessing that God is talking about is you will know him better and that will change your life. The reality is, for me and for you, God is a God of blessing. Isn't it interesting, Genesis 1.28, when God creates Adam and Eve, it says, God blessed them and then said, be fruitful and multiply. Jesus, as he's given the greatest sermon ever told, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, opened up with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Then he went on to say, blessed, blessed. He said nine different types. of there's, God is a God who blesses his people with more of himself, he is the prize. And it says this, blessed, we'll go on to the next slide here. Blessed is the one who does not 
It's gonna list off a few things. Walk in the counsel of the wicked. Stand in the way of the sinner. Or sit in the seat of mockers. Maybe you'll see a bit of a progression here. What this is talking about is, blessed is the person who doesn't get so comfortable with an ever-increasingly godless culture and godless worldview. Do you see it? At first it says, blessed is the man who doesn't just walk along in the counsel of the wicked. I'm not just going to even, I'm not going to be walking along with the people who want to tell me that it's worthless to pursue God. I don't want to be in their counsel. I don't want to hear their thoughts. I don't want them pumping that into my ears. I'm just kind of walking along and I'm listening. I'm here. But then the next one says, and I don't want to stand in the way of sinners. Now I've kind of held up a little bit. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, what would you say? And now I'm going to stand in the practice, the way of the sinner. Huh, man, that does look pretty good. And the last one says, or this blessed is the man who doesn't sit down and pull up the lazy boy and kick it out and kick back and sits in the seat of a mocker. The one who has decided God's way is not the right way, I'll do this my way. There's a fork in the road. Blessed is the man who does not get too comfortable with an ever-increasing godless culture, a godless worldview. There is real life found here. There is nothing but sorrow, despair, and trouble to do anything different. Blessed is the man who does not do that. But the next verse says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Who are we referring to? The blessed one. Blessed is the person who delights in the law of the Lord. What does this word delight mean? What's your delight? Maybe you're a hunter and you're coming into the most delightful season you have. Maybe you delight in the 57 days of summer we have here in Montana. Maybe you delight in the nine months of skiing it provides. Maybe you delight in a relationship or a job. What is it that's easy for you to think about and it brings you joy? What's your delight? Here's my delight. I'll give it to you. It's real plain and simple. Let me show the picture. This is my family. This is my big boy, Dax. He's 10. My little girl, Biz. She's now eight. And my little man, Garrett, who has two speeds, sleep and rage, and he is six. And that smoking hot person in the middle is my wife. She's amazing. She's the most godly human I know. She and the Lord treat me way better than I deserve. And can I just tell you, it is no trouble for me to delight in my wife, to delight in my kids. The verse says here in verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on this he meditates day and night. I can think about my wife and my kids day and night. I don't go a day or a night and not think about them. I don't get to the end of the month and think, oh, I've got three kids. I better, I gotta, where are they? I can't even come back from Walmart without all three. I can't miss them for a whole month. The reality is what is it that's just easily on your mind that brings you joy? Look at what the psalmist says here in verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. We think David wrote this. We don't know for sure. But he says this. My delight, the blessed person, their delight is in the law of the Lord. Now when you're thinking about what this psalmist is writing about, they're talking about the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, if you will. We're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the psalmist is writing, oh, that's where I have delight, in the law of the Lord. Give me some of that ceremonial cleansing in Leviticus. Mm. 
I want to talk about the numbers and the cubits. Oh, how big's the tabernacle? That's the good stuff. How much more for me and you as New Testament believers that we have the full revelation of God's word, where we understand God's whole plan of salvation, where we understand his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, when we get to see the life, the death, the resurrection, and the promised coming of Jesus Christ. How much more can I delight in the teachings of Paul that don't leave me in the dark on how should I live my life now? What, how do I offer my life back to a loving and giving God who wants to bless me? <clears throat> You and I ought to be able to say clearly, my delight is in the law of the Lord. And I meditate on it day and night. Now when I tell my kids we're gonna meditate on the word, they think like Kung Fu Panda, like some Eastern, oh, oh, oh. they kind of do that, they think it's funny. That's not when the Bible talks about meditate. What it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. An Eastern meditation would be to empty your mind. A biblical meditation would be to engage your mind and to drill down deep into the things of word to, for the word of God. You know, uh, the word that we have that best describes meditate for us is the word ruminate. Now, I'm, I'm a city boy through and through. I bought these cowboy boots just for show, okay? <laughs> but I know that a cow ruminates, and that's probably the best word picture we have about what God is speaking about when we should meditate on his word. And the word ruminate is a cow, you guys know way better than I do, a cow eats the grass, chews it up, grinds it up, and swallows it down into its stomach. And it begins to extract the nutrients out of that. And then, cow, it's kind of gross, but a cow brings it back up, and now it's called cud, uh, that's cool, and they chew on it, and they break it down even further, and they swallow it into another stomach, and they begin to extract even more nutrients. I don't know a lot about ag. I grew up in a big city. But I think cows have like 522 stomachs. And they keep doing this. I don't even know how many stomachs I have. But they have a lot of things. And they keep pulling all the nutrients out of the grass. They get every bit of nutrition out of it. That's what you and I are called to do with the word of God. That we would meditate on it. We'd drill down deep. I'd keep bringing it back up into my mind. Day and night I would do this. How do I do this day and night? Drew, I'm busy. How would I get this done? Can I challenge you? This would be my point of application. Pound for pound in my spiritual life, nothing has brought about more growth for me personally in my walk in pursuing God and enjoying the blessing of more of him than hiding God's word down into my heart. Taking some of my favorite verses, teachings of Christ, some of my favorite passages, and beginning to memorize them. And you might think, Drew, that's crazy. I can just pick up my Bible and open it and it's there. Drew, it's on my phone. Why would I need to memorize it? Can I just say, I dare you? Can I just dare you? Take your top three favorite verses that have just meant the most to you. If you don't have three, if you're new to this, if you're checking it out, if you want to grab one of the notes page, I gave you my top 10. Little window into my brain. You're welcome. <laughs> but as I've memorized the word, can I tell you, God uses it at the most random times. And I don't need to pull my phone out. I don't need to reach out and grab my Bible. I don't need to listen to a sermon on Sunday. God just begins to use the word of God to recall the things that he's working on in my life. There's times when I want to be angry with my kid and boop, here comes a verse about that. There's times when I'm tempted with uh, in a lustful thought and boop, here comes a verse about that. And it helps me meditate 
and drill down deep into the word of God and pull out all those nutrients so that I can be on the road of understanding more of who he is, what he's about, and what he wants for my life. It's a beautiful thing. But can I just tell you, 20 years of working on the campus, 20 years of working with my friends and the community and other people in other churches, not, the, the church at large is not digging down into the word like maybe generations past. And I want us to reclaim some of that. So I started thinking, what's the hang-up? Is it an accessibility issue? I would say no. Almost all of us have access to the word of God. If you don't have a Bible, Bob will give you his, or I think there's some out in the lobby. You can get one. Talk to someone out there. We'd love for you. There's no other book on the planet like this for your life. It's not an accessibility issue. Do you know that 52 of the 195 recognized sovereign nations of the world severely restrict or outright ban the Bible? 52. Here in America, we are not on that list. If you got your cell phone, you've got every version of the Bible probably ever written. When I say version, I mean translation. But boy, I bet many of us have a few up on the shelf. So what's the issue? Why aren't we burying it down deep into our heart? Why am I not meditating on it day and night? For some of us, I think it's just understanding that there's authority in the word of God. That this really isn't just a book of good suggestions, but it's the authoritative word of God. And there's evidence for that. And I want to present just a little bit of that to you to motivate you to put your head into the word. There's two types of evidence. There's, there's external evidence to the scriptures and there's internal evidence to the scriptures. The external evidence would be like the historical things that we find, archaeological things we find, extra biblical texts that all come in and validate the scriptures. Do you know that we have not ever had an archaeological find, a historical find that has ever debunked the Bible? In fact, the opposite is true. When they make a new discovery, they find over and over that the Bible continues to prove itself as the authoritative word of God, as the most trusted book from the ancient world ever. But there's internal evidences as well. That, for me, is enough because the scriptures are all sufficient. I don't need science to tell me this. I don't need archaeology to tell me this. I have the words of God right here. I tell students all the time, wouldn't it be a shame if God couldn't get one book through the printing press the way that he wanted to? And here I get it right here, revealing his revealed word for me and for you. 2 Timothy 3.16 says it this way, that all the scripture is God-breathed, like his blessing just... And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That would be all the evidence that I need to know that the Bible tells me this is the word of God. The sciency, historical, archaeological, extra-biblical evidences, they're great because they back up what I already know to believe. But this is where I come for the authority of God's scriptures. But for some of you, you're like me. I, I grew up, a, I, I was an engineer at one point in my life and I went to uh, Georgia Tech down in the south, worked for a season in the design world. And so I kind of geek out on some of the stats and other things. And uh, back in the 50s, there was a professor named Peter Stone. He was the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy in Pasadena College. He was also the chairman of the science division at Westmont College throughout his career to about 57. Peter Stoner went about to try and figure out what is the chances of the Old Testament prophecy being true about one person in the person of Jesus. 
And Stoner calculated that the probability of one person, Jesus, fulfilling only eight, okay, eight of the most, they are the most solid, we can say when it was prophesied and what it was prophesied about, how specific it was prophesied, that those eight things by different authors at different periods in history would all come true about one man in first century Palestine in the name of Jesus. He calculated the probability of that one man fulfilling only eight of the over 300 prophecies in the scriptures. He published his research in 1944 in the book Science Speaks, scientific proof of the accuracy and prophecy in the Bible. Stoner concluded that the probability of one person fulfilling just eight of the specific prophecies was one chance in 10 to the 17 power. Now, some of you English majors are going, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) That means it is a one with 17 zeros behind it. We'll put the number up here. You can actually see what it looks like. Stoner's calculations were independently verified by the American Scientific Affiliation. When I heard one to the 10 to the 17, my jaw hit the floor and I called the smartest guy that I know. His name's Greg. He's a rocket scientist down in Lockheed Martin, literally working on the next rocket ship that we're gonna put up in space. I said, Greg, what is one to the 10 to the 17? And he goes, one to the 10. He goes, Drew, I believe that's 100 quadrillion. He said, let me check. And he Googled it. That was a lot easier than calling him. (laughs) The chances of those eight prophecies, the only eight of the 300 we could pick from, were all true about Jesus, was the same probability that you have in one in 100 quadrillion. Stoner went on to give us an illustration, and he said, if you were to take 100 quadrillion silver dollars, you have no idea how hard it is to find a silver dollar. I went to like five banks. I asked for 100 quadrillion. They said no. <laughs> if you had 100 quadrillion silver dollars, Stoner states, I take these numbers by faith, that it would be enough to cover the entire surface of the great nation of Texas. Anybody from Texas? I lived there for two years. Texas is a massive place. It's a demoralizing state to take a road trip in. You never leave. He said 100 quadrillion silver dollars would cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. And the probability that Jesus just got lucky and fulfilled these eight prophecies, not the 300, would be like marking one of these with red paint, burying it anywhere across the great state of Texas, as deep as you want within that stack, and then blindfolding somebody in Dallas, spinning them like they're going to play pin the tail on the donkey, and say, you may go as far as you wish in any direction as long as you stay within the borders of Texas. Whenever you feel like it, you may stop, you may reach down, you may dig as far down as you want, and I want you to pull up the one marked silver dollar. That is the same probability that Jesus somehow randomly, by chance, with luck, fulfilled the scriptures. Can I just tell you what you and I have is a miracle. It's a miracle straight from God for me and for you. He says, blessed is the one who delights in this and meditates on it day and night. Can I tell you why it has authority in my life? Yeah, I could read Stoner's uh, statistics. Sounds like a professor at Boulder where I was from. But (laughs) can I just tell you why it has authority in my life? Because I got truckloads of regret. Anybody else relate? 
My kids love these big bulldozer things, these mining cars and stuff. There's a big bulldozer or a dump truck. You got to climb a ladder to get in the cab. Picture just truck after truck after truck just standing there with all of my sin and my junk, my bad decisions, the things I regret. Can I tell you why this has authority in my life? Because none of them, none of them are in there because I obeyed the word of God. I have no regrets from obeying the word of God in my life. That does not mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's always comfortable. Doesn't mean it doesn't cost me something. But I have no regrets ever for obeying the word of God. That's why it is my authority. So the reality is, blessed is the person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit at the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. Verse three, let's look at this last one and we'll close up here. What's the result? It says this, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. The blessed person, the one who meditates, the one who comes after the word of God, the one who pursues the Lord, he's like a tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. We have two really clear pictures here. Remember that fork in the road? He says the person who's delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night, hiding the word of God in their heart, pursuing God through his holy word, he's like a tree who is planted by streams of water. I've got a great picture of a tree here. Can you picture this? This tree would produce its fruit in season. Now, the biblical text is really talking about more of an irrigation ditch. This is something that would, they're in an arid desert environment, so there's always water flowing through this irrigation type stream. But this picture just reminds me, this is how I want my life with Christ to look like. Big, heavy, green leaves producing fruit when it's time to produce fruit, being able to weather the storm because my roots go down deep. I'm not in a drought. I'm not flaking off. I'm not breaking when the wind comes. Because I am strong, because my roots have gone down deep and I'm yielding my fruit and season and my leaves will not wither. Whatever he does prospers. But it says this, the other route is also clear and God makes an equally great promise, not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Coming back to my amazing agricultural experience being raised in big cities, I had to look up, what's the chaff? This is what it looks like when you start to sort the wheat from the chaff. There's a bit of a husk around the kernel of wheat and you've got to get this papery woodsy part off and so farmers would take them up on these big baskets and they'd flip it up in the air and they'd begin to rub together and the wind, the breeze would begin to blow away the papery woodsy chaff and it would be discarded and burned and they would keep the good kernels to make whatever they were going to make with the wheat. They would do it with a pitchfork and throw it in the air and the wind would throw it away. They'd use these baskets and toss it in the air. What a stark contrast that God would say, you'd be like a tree deeply rooted in him, producing fruit in season, prospering. But when I live it according to my way instead of God, when I live it my way instead of God's way, I am like the chaff that is blown along. Now, I don't want to add anything to the scriptures, but my Christian ministry experience has taught me most Christians, many Christians, I should say, maybe not most, but many Christians, their tree looks something more like this. 
Uh, my wife and I and my kids were down in Garden of the Gods, Colorado Springs this past summer, right next to our Navigators International Headquarters. And I saw this tree, and I don't know if this tree is five years old or 50 years old, but it is growing out of a rock. It's spectacular when you see it. Have you seen a tree like this? And these long roots are coming down just looking for any kind of nutrient or water or whatever they can get a hold of. It breaks my heart as a minister to see so many of my Christian brothers and sisters, their tree looks something more like this than the one by the streams of water. I would submit to you the key ingredient would be the person who believes that God's word is real, that the blessing that he offers of more of him is real, that the gateway is here, that you can choose life in him or you can choose a life apart from him. Psalm 16.4 says, the sorrows of those will increase who chase after false gods. But for me and for you, I wanna encourage you, what does it look like to delight in the law of the Lord? to meditate on it day and night. I'm praying this morning you would not hear or you'd walk away thinking, oh, I should do this more. I better do that. I ought to do this. That is dead religion. What I am talking about is you get to be in God's word knowing the God of the universe. This is like a window that tells me this is the author. This is what he wants for my life. This is who he is. And it has radically changed my life. And I pray it would radically continue to change yours. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for my friends here at Journey Church. Lord, we love you. We want to live for you. We want the blessing that you offer. Lord, I know there's people in the room here who haven't made a decision yet to trust you. Would you continue to draw them to yourself? Would they look at the evidences of your word? Would they look at the teachings of Christ? Would they understand that you offer them great life and hope in you? Jesus, we wanna be a people that know you. We wanna be a people that recognize you are the blessing. Lord, each day when I wake up, I pray I would choose to run down the path that fork in the road towards you, not away from you, that I wouldn't listen to the ideology or worldview of that of people who don't know you, but that I would recognize that you are the king. You are the one, the lover of my soul. You're the one who keeps me, who protects me, who gives me your grace and invites me into your family. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your holy, revealed word. Would we be men and women who, who delighted it. I think of Jeremiah the prophet who said, when your words came, Lord, I ate them for they were my joy and my heart's delight. Would you let us be people of this book, Lord, not to be Pharisees, but to people who look like you, Jesus, who talk like you, Jesus, who serve like you, Jesus, who love like you, Jesus. We pray for this valley, that your glory would come, that your name would be high and lifted up. Would you use us, Lord, we pray. We ask this in your strong name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net. Thanks.